listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. I grew up in a small town on a small 26-acre farmette in New Jersey. We raised grass-fed cattle, nothing like grass-fed beef, and there, I mean nothing. Don't let anybody confuse you and make you think that grain-fed is the best. It's grass-fed. That's the best. We raised pigs. We raised ducks and chickens. We had eggs. And we were busy on that farm, whether it was having a cow slaughtered and then we would wrap that meat ourselves. I would remember working in the butcher shop and packing steaks and sirloin and ground beef and feeding the pigs and cleaning out the barn, the manure and things of that sort. We would have hay delivered and then we would stack the hay on the top of the barn. We had a hay loft and we had so much grass that every week during the summer, when it was time to cut the grass, it would take us five hours. My older brother, my younger brother, myself, my mother, my father, it would take us five hours to cut all of the grass. We worked hard. We worked frequently. And my mother knew that. My mother worked hard. You know, mothers do double duty. My mother wasn't just outside doing all of that work as well, but she was also inside. And when she was inside, she was preparing delicious meals for us, at least Most of the time, my mother made and prepared delicious meals for us. Like this one time, you know, what my mother would do is she would leverage herself and she would use a crock pot. You know, a crock pot is what we use when we're busy. We want to take care of other things, so we throw a bunch of things into a crock pot. And while we forget about it, we come back and we say, well, look at that. How amazing. How delicious. Most of the time. Well, one of these times, we came in after working outside. We were busting our backsides, and my brothers and I walked in. My father walked in after his day at work, and we recognized something didn't smell right. We knew that my mother was cooking, but it wasn't like her usual cooking. Something did not smell right. We said, Mom, what does that smell? My mom looked kind of nervous. She said, I don't know what it is. Just sit down. We're going to eat. So we all sat down at the dinner table, and we asked her again, Mom, what is that smell? I don't know what you're talking about. My mother looked very, very uncomfortable. So we were having chili that night from our own grass-fed beef. So my mother took a ladle and scooped out some of that chili, put it in each of our bowls, and we were looking at each other kind of puzzled. It looked absolutely delicious. We prayed as we always did, and then we dug in with our spoons, and almost simultaneously, my mother, we look over at her, and she's, she's holding back extreme laughter. You can tell by the look on her face, she is fighting extreme laughter. And we're putting this food in our mouths, and we all make the same face at the same time, drop our spoons, look at her, and say, Mom, this, this, is, this is terrible. What is this? My mom laughs. She goes, I know, I know. I mistook the cinnamon for the chili. <laughs> and I put too much, I put cinnamon in there. I figured I put a lot of chili in this chili, but instead I put a lot of cinnamon in this chili, and I kept adding more onions, I kept adding more garlic, I kept adding more chili powder, and more peppers, and it seemed like the more I put in, I just could not overwhelm and overcome that doggone cinnamon. And so I don't know if we ate that chili that night. I don't remember that. But I do remember this. I learned a lesson 
that day, and you're going to learn one too. No amount of the wrong solution will compensate for the absence of the right solution. No amount of the wrong solution will compensate for the absence of the right solution. My mother could have put a whole bag of onions in there. She could have dumped more chili. She feverishly, I'm sure, she told us because she was laughing so hard how she had tried to put more of the other ingredients into that chili. It was too late. There's already cinnamon in there. Once there's cinnamon in a crock pot full of quote-unquote chili, lots of luck. You're not turning that thing around. You know, the same is true in your life and in mine and in this nation. There are problems in this nation that are spiritual at their core. When you have a spiritual problem in a nation, a spiritual problem in a family, a spiritual problem in a life, you can throw everything you want that's not spiritual as a solution, and you ain't getting nowhere. For example, in our nation, we have a presidential election coming up next year. The new president, whoever he might be, will take that oath of office in January of 2017. Don't you think for a moment that our spiritual problems have a political solution? Now, don't get me wrong. You should vote. You better vote. And if we find ourselves having a choice between dumb and dumber, you better vote for dumb or you'll be serving dumber. God does raise up leaders like the people. He does. Read the book of Judges. God raises up a leader like the people, and it's time for you and me, for us as the body of Christ and as followers of Jesus Christ, to be the people that we need to be so that God begins to raise up the leaders that reflect us. Not the minority of people in the world, not the minority of people in this nation. Do you understand how our nation has been fundamentally changed and will continue to be changed because a minority of people with radical, anti-biblical, anti-Christ views are making the decisions. They're making legislation. They're leading from the bench, legislating from the bench. Listen, all legislation is about morality. All of it. That's the definition of what a law is. This is wrong. This is right. The question is, whose morality would you like to follow? The morality of somebody who doesn't want to follow the Bible, who doesn't want to follow Jesus Christ, or the morality of somebody who wants to go back to Judeo-Christian values, the values that made this nation great, not perfect. Before you get off on a tangent, this nation is not perfect, okay? There's no such thing as a perfect nation on this planet. Not a perfect person. The only perfect person was Jesus Christ. And the only perfect government is the one that's coming when Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David and rules and reigns literally on this earth. However, in the meantime, there is good, better, and best. There is good, better, and best. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. What about the nation whose God is not the Lord? Can't be blessed in the same way. Good, better, best. See, we could throw a wrong solution at the spiritual problems, thinking that it's the president that is going to change the nation. Listen, I'm going to go out on the limb here, and I'm going to say that unless the next president actually reverses some of the things that were put into action 
over the past few years, it won't matter who the next president is. Can you say that in church? I just did. Listen, when a government doesn't honor the teachings of the Bible, it's honoring somebody else's teachings. And if somebody else's teachings apart from the Bible are being honored, God cannot honor that nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh. Find it in the Psalms. Find it for yourself. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Not just blessed is the nation who has a God. Every nation has gods. This nation has gods, and that's part of our problem. And I'm not speaking about the world. I'm speaking about those of us who claim to be Christ followers. See, a God is anybody or anything around whom your life revolves. It can be money. It can be a relationship. It can be a material thing that Yahweh gives you, that the living and true God gives you. That's what happened to the Israelites when God warned them in the book of Deuteronomy. When you go into this land and you enjoy houses you didn't build and eat the grapes from the vineyards that you didn't plant, well, God gave them to the people, and the people began to forget. The warning of the Lord is, do not forget, do not forget. And the people then, and we today, we forget. We begin to have our lives revolving around the blessings of God. The blessings of God become the little God, the mini-God. The problems in this nation are not moral in nature, although we have significant moral problems in our nation. Moral problems are the symptom of the real root problem, which is a spiritual problem. The debt in this nation is at a record high. Debt in families is at a record high. Debt in Christian families is at a record high. That's not a financial problem. That is a spiritual problem. Did you understand that? When we come to church and we don't have money to give to God, whether it's a tenth, which is a good starting point, a tithe, the first fruits, because we have spent God's money on other things. So many of us try to fill that void that can only be filled by God with some other thing. That's why it's not working. Only God can fill the void that only God was made to fill. But what amazes me and what should amaze you, what grieves me and what should grieve you, what should grieve all of us is that we have the solution revealed to us again and again and again and again in passage after passage after passage after passage after passage of the Bible of what to do when there are difficult times in our individual lives, in our families, and in the nation. I don't know why we only see the problem. It seems like at best all we're doing is saying, look how terrible things are in our nation. Look at the course that we're going down. It seems to be the wrong course, the wrong direction. We seem to be making bad decision after a bad decision as if a bunch of bad decisions is somehow going to come out at the end as a good decision. If our problems are spiritual, and they are, if our national problem is spiritual, and it is, 
then our only solution is spiritual. And it is. And God Almighty wants you to understand. He wants me to understand, but he wants us to do more than understand. He wants us to arise. He wants us to make changes. He wants us to repent. To repent and to return, or perhaps in some instances, to turn for the first time to our first Love. The problem in this nation is the problem in the body of Christ. I am pleading with you. I am begging you. God himself is speaking to you. He's speaking to me. We have quite a few mistresses in our lives. We have a lot of things that we have tried to Use as replacements for the living and the true God, and it's not working. A politician is not the answer for a spiritual problem. Although God might send us a good politician, that God sends bad politicians as instruments at times to get the attention of his people. In the book of Judges, God gave them leaders like the people. So if we want leaders like the people, the question is, what kind of people do we want to be? If not you, then who? If not now, then when? What else does God have to do? Read the Bible, and we can see what else God can do to get our attention. Merely recognizing a problem does nothing unless the recognition of that problem moves us to the solution. You know, in Joel's day, when God spoke through the prophet Joel, the people had a problem, and it was a big problem. And yet, the problem was not so big that it was bigger than God You wouldn't know about Joel except for the fact of when the Spirit of God moved in him and stirred him. We wouldn't know a thing about Joel other than God getting a hold of him. And the same is true in your life and mine. Same thing is true where nobody's doing nothing until somebody, God, gets a hold of us and speaks to us. And God is speaking to us right now. He's been speaking to us already. And today we go to the book of Joel in chapter 1 and verse 2 and we see what God was doing in this man as God was stirring this one individual, one person, one mere mortal, one nobody who became a somebody because of the somebody who was welling up inside of him, the living and true God. God used this one person to change a nation. Why is it that we don't understand that that's the way it always works? It's moral and spiritual decline. God disciplines and judges the nation to get their attention. God raises up a leader or leaders who are committed wholeheartedly, brokenhearted over the situation, and they take drastic biblical measures to do the one thing, the solution, that has the greatest consequences. Remember, more of the wrong solution will not compensate for a lack of the right solution. Joel chapter 1 verse 2, hear this you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land 
Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children. And their children to another generation. Now look at this. This is the crisis that they were facing. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Multiple different types of locusts had come into the land so that their livelihood, their food, their sustenance was totally removed from them. Verse 5, Awake you drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it's cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. In other words, you'll never get to consummate your marriage. Have that type of weeping and sorrow. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord. Notice the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the people. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. More of the wrong solution will not compensate for the absence of the right solution. And the right solution for these people here in Joel was to repent and to turn back to the Lord. They had heard God's voice loud and clear. They had experienced and witnessed the hand of God, the disciplinary hand of God, very clearly. What is it about us today in 21st century America where we can't connect the dots? I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. You and me. The solution for us is the same as it was for the people in that day. You might say, well, that's Old Testament. What is all the Old Testament? Irrelevant? And the road to Emmaus, Jesus talks to Cleopas and another disciple. And he opened up their minds to the Scriptures so that they could see everything in the Old Testament was about Jesus. Let it be Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And God loves you and he loves me. He loves this nation. He loves all people on this planet so much that he will not let us continue in our waywardness. He will let us get a little bit uncomfortable, increasingly uncomfortable, until we are willing to do the only thing that is the real solution to all of the problems presenting themselves as the real problem when they're not, they're peripheral issues. The real problem is a spiritual problem. The real solution is a spiritual solution, and that solution is found in the person of God himself in Jesus Christ and turning to him, returning to him fully. Look with me at Joel chapter 1, verse 13. Here's the solution. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. See, again, it begins with 
the spiritual leaders because it's a spiritual problem. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God. In other words, spend your time not sleeping. Be restless, be sleepless, because the situation is this dark. The situation is this dire. The situation is this important because it's been brought upon us by God. Because the grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Verse 14, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Here's the fourth significant commonality in a revival, a spiritual awakening in the Bible. The leader and the leaders call for drastic biblical action. And one of those things is a solemn assembly. It's, the adjective is there on purpose, solemn, to help understand the spiritual significance Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. And our problem today is quite different than the way they seem to handle problems in the Old Testament, the way they seem to handle problems in the New Testament. When God's people saw problems in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, they didn't just stop at shaking their heads and saying, well, God is sovereign. He'll do whatever he wants. Well, whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. We all speak a little bit of French. We've confused the sovereignty with God with irresponsibility of you and me. We always see the sovereignty of God working through people like you and me, mere mortals, who say, you know what? I'm going to be responsible. And that's what repentance is all about, being responsible, taking responsibility for our own actions. In our own lives and in our families and in this nation. It's your nation and mine. Don't we care what's happening in this nation? Why not? Don't throw it onto God's lap as if it's all up to him. If that were the case, why are we still here? It's up to God and us. This is the whole idea of why God saves us and leaves us here to build his kingdom through mere mortals to change a world that would otherwise go to hell and to rescue people from darkness with children of light. That's what you are. That's what I am when we accept Christ. We become children of light. It's your nation, as much as somebody else's nation who happens to live here. And God's people who have God's heart care about the nation in which they live, care deeply about the nation in which they live because they realize that a nation is comprised of people who either know Christ or don't know Christ. A nation either reflects the glory of God for goodness or becomes a reproach to the rest of the nations, and a stench in the nostrils of God. Jesus said, you are salt and light. And I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that we seem to have lost our saltiness. We seem to have forgotten that we could put all the lights out in this auditorium. The darkness could be so thick and so overwhelming that each of us could put our hands 
three inches before our faces and not see it, but light one match, and everything changes. The deeper the darkness, the more obvious it is to see the light when it shines. Arise and shine. It's time for you and me for our lights to shine in the darkness right now, not in the future. It's not for somebody else, not for some other church, not for some other pastor, group of elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, not for some other family. It's for you and for me right here, right now, your family and my family, this church, this time, this season, this nation. No amount of the wrong solution will compensate for the absence of the right solution. The whole book, the Bible, is filled with examples about God moving and people responding. God speaking and people listening. God moving and shaking and some people somewhere listening to God, looking at what God's doing and saying, I want to be part of God's movement. Now, of course, there are people who see the same things, hear the same things, and want nothing to do with God. Biblically, there's a pattern. There is revival after revival, spiritual awakening after spiritual awakening in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, spiritual awakenings. In fact, the day of Pentecost, one of the biggest spiritual awakenings, revivals in all of history, 3,000 people coming to recognize the living and true God wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And for 40 days before the day of Pentecost, what were they doing? They were waiting, probably fasting and praying and obeying what Jesus had said. Don't go out until the Holy Spirit falls on you. And what were they doing? While they were praying, when they were in the upper room, being obedient to God, the Holy Spirit fell. And when the Holy Spirit falls, more can be done in the twinkling of an eye than you and I together on our best days putting forth our best effort without him. And what we need today is a mighty movement of the Holy Spirit in the church that bears his name. We need that. Do you understand that what I just said, I royally failed in communicating the urgency and the necessity. You need a movement of the Holy Spirit in your life and in your family. I do too. Your problems are not financial problems. They are not moral problems. They are spiritual problems. And the solution is not found in a thing. It's found in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And what we are doing in the body of Christ, what we are guilty of doing in the body of Christ, is we want the world to embrace Judeo-Christian values, but we're not embracing Judeo-Christian values. We get all upset and get ourselves in a tizzy when the definition of marriage has been redefined, when all along we've allowed the definition of marriage to be redefined. I'm not talking about between a man and a woman. I'm talking about the way we conduct ourselves in our marriages. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, 
Love your husbands by submitting to your husband. You say, I don't want to submit to that guy. He's an ogre. Well, husbands, if we understood what it meant to love your wife as Christ loved the church, you wouldn't be an ogre. See, God would change you. And your wife would say, I'm happy to submit to you because you love me as Christ loved the church. We're all about, we want to take out the speck in other people's eyes. We got a log in our own eye, Jesus said. And that doesn't mean we lose our ability to speak into the lives of other people because Jesus said, remove the speck in your own eye and then you will be able to speak. Don't forget the second part of that passage. This nation, haven't you noticed it, needs spiritual awakening. It's not out there for somebody else to be involved, not out there for some other church, some other people, some other time, some other generation. I've got two young kids. Many of you do. Grandchildren. Many of you will, regardless of children or not. It's not responsible to shirk the spiritual responsibility that you and I should have right now at this dark day and age in history. See, if we do everything and anything else except the one thing while history is happening that is the most important thing, it doesn't matter what else we do. It doesn't matter. More of the wrong solution will not make right for the absence of the right solution. And the one thing that we should be doing in the body of Christ is going back to the Bible and understanding how does God move? What does it look like when God's moving? How does God speak? How can I recognize the voice of God? How do I discern the times? And what should I be doing as a Christ follower in these days? There's a pattern in the Bible. It's spiritual awakening and, and revival. There's a pattern, multiple revivals under David, under King Asa, under Hezekiah. Read them for yourself. Under Josiah, multiple examples in the Scripture. They differ in bits and pieces, but they have commonality. Number one, the nation comes to a point of moral and spiritual decline that is unprecedented. Number two, God sends judgment to that nation to get their attention. Number three, God raises up a leader or leaders who says, it's not just enough to recognize the problem. We have to acknowledge the solution, and the solution is God. And then fourth, that leader or leaders takes extraordinary biblical measures to call the people and himself back to the God whom we've forgotten. Oh, we've done a great job at saying, oh, the nation's in trouble. Leadership is not simply about recognizing the problem. Leadership is about coming up with the solution to the problem. You know, many of us have confused the sovereignty of God and the grace of God for absolute irresponsibility. And when you read the Bible, when I read the Bible, and there's a whole lot in the Bible about this, the Bible is all about God moving and people like you and me, mere mortals, regular people, common people, people with issues. We've all got them, but people who take those issues and say, God, I acknowledge my issues. God, you're my solution. You're the solution to my issues because if I don't recognize that you're the solution to my issues and I've got a new issue, No amount of the wrong solution will compensate for the absence of the right solution. And what you and I need to do is rediscover the right solution. And at its core, if this were an artichoke and we were peeling it back, 
at the epicenter of it all, the core is that we have forsaken the Lord, the church, the body of Christ, we Christians, we who want everyone else to change need to be the first ones who change. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Look with me at Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. After a solemn assembly that King Solomon called. This event happened where God appeared to Solomon in the night, said to him, I've heard your prayer, I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people, notice who's being addressed, not the world, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Seems like the most we're willing to do today in the body of Christ is recognize that our nation's in trouble. Recognize that we've got poor leadership. Recognize that we're confused. Recognize that we've got financial problems. Recognize that we've got moral difficulty. Recognize that we're at risk of being overtaken by our enemies in an overt way. That's as far as it goes. That's not biblical. That's not the biblical, godly way to respond to a crisis. The disciplinary hand of God, the way that God judges people, is is real in the Bible. It's historic. We are, as a church, the body of Christ, at a Red Sea moment. We need God to part the waters so that we can walk through Multiple ways that God can judge, multiple ways that God does judge. One of the ways that we think of, of when we, we read the Bible, we think about these wars that happen where God sends an opposing nation against the nation that he's trying to get the attention of. And that's an overt way that God judges, and it's at his disposal. God has a, a multiplicity of means at his disposal, financial issues, natural disasters, but also the withholding of his blessing. This morning I went outside a little bit later than I should have because there was something on the windshield of my car that I haven't seen for a little while called frost. Now, if you're trying to get someplace in a hurry and you hadn't anticipated the frost, you have to do something that's going to make you even later than you originally would have been because now you have to scrape off that frost off of your windshield and you frantically use your windshield wiper fluid, hoping and praying that it's sub-zero quality, right? That it can endure in sub-zero temperatures. And I was surprised today as I came out of the house because I wasn't prepared, because I wasn't insulated from the cold. I didn't have a jacket that was warm enough for the cold weather. You see, that's the way God can discipline us in the preliminary stages of discipline. When an individual, when a family, when a nation is beginning to experience the disciplinary judgment of God, which is designed to get the attention of the people and draw them back to loving God with all of their being, the initial stages are the removal of the insulation. So that when we're exposed to the elements that we otherwise would not be exposed to, it's not overt, it's subtle, but it's noticeable. And I'm not so sure that God has not already begun to speak to this nation. 
whether you're in the bond market industry, whether you're on Wall Street, whether you're on Main Street, you know as well as I do that you're beginning to have discussions with your children that you never dreamed imaginable in your lifetime. Brace yourself because if things don't change, you're going to have a lot more discussions with your children at a very early age that might very well embarrass you because of commercials you see on television, because of things we see in magazines. This is just the tip of the iceberg, and God is allowing it because we have allowed it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then, then God moves. Don't confuse the sovereignty of God with the responsibility of human beings. I don't know how God does this. You can ask him when you see him face to face. Why and how he lowers himself to our level to watch and wait for we mortals to do something when he could swoop in and in the twinkling of an eye change everything. I don't know, but it tells me something about the humility of God. Tells us something about the way God moves. God is a God of relationships. God is a God who enjoys partnering. He doesn't like to fly solo, whether it's the Trinity, whether it's the idea of creating man and woman in his image, in the image of God he created them, and God said, this is good. God doesn't like to fly solo for some reason. God wants your input. God wants my input. God wants our participation in this kingdom of God that he's building. I don't know why. I would think that it would be much easier to build a kingdom without human beings. But then when you stop and think about it, scratch your head, well then, who would be part of that kingdom without human beings? The nation is in trouble. And so far, we're not doing what we need to do to be who we're supposed to be. And somehow, in the long-suffering patience of God, he's waiting and watching. We have biblical precedent for this. He's waiting and watching to see what you and I will do. Joel chapter 2, verse 12, an amazing passage of Scripture which helps us see the light at the end of the tunnel. And the light at the end of the tunnel is God himself. God showing up, God responding, God moving People partnering with God, God partnering with people. Look with me, Joel chapter 12, verse 2. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with half your heart. That's the insane standard version. That's what that is. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him and grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Listen, you don't know, I don't know where we are in God's prophetic time clock. 
Paul in his day, 2,000 years ago, thought the Lord's return was going to be during his lifetime. And here we are 2,000 years after the fact. You know the best way to live your life, the best way for us to live our lives is to be all about loving God with all of our being. And you and I won't care when Jesus returns. You and I will be ready when Jesus returns. That's what it means. Have your lamps trimmed and ready for service. Don't let yourself go down a theological rabbit trail, getting into theological debate about the timing and circumstances of Jesus' return. This country might have a long way to go down that dark, slippery slope of moral decline because of the spiritual decline. But, 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 let it not be so because we have a case sera, sera, what will be will be. I don't care. God's going to do whatever he wants to do anyway. Attitude. That's not biblical. We need to repent of that. That's not responsible. That's why he says, who knows what God will do? Repentance is always in style when it comes to God. Walking in humility before God is always in fashion. Doing what is right before the living and true God, regardless of the consequences, is a sign of spiritual maturity. And I'm not so sure that we, in this nation that's been so tremendously blessed by God, are actually some of the most spiritually immature people because we have allowed ourselves to become content with the blessings of God and we've lost sight of the God who's given us these blessings. Verse 15, Joel chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. What? Listen, there are a lot of days in your life and mine that might have been messed up, but one day you don't want messed up is your wedding day. You let all hell break loose in your environment around you, But on your wedding day, you're going to be ready, bride, for your bridegroom. Groom, you're going to be ready for your bride, unless the situation is so significant and so serious because God is moving, God is speaking. Then you drop everything. Nobody is left out of the children, even the infants. Get everybody together because God is moving. God is speaking. God is disciplining. And we must respond by returning to him. This is spoken to God's people. There are certain principles in the Bible that are timeless. And one of them is that when God calls a people to himself, he is a jealous God. God is a God of relationship. He wants closeness with his people. And when his people don't want closeness with him, well, you can't have the fringe benefits. There are fringe benefits in walking with God. That abundant life that Jesus talks about, not just a reference to money. In fact, I think it's so shallow to think that the abundant life that Jesus was talking about, the forgiveness of all of our sins, restored relationship with God, how shallow, how insulting to this. For those of you who are listening, I'm making my body look like Jesus hanging on the cross. 
Paul said it well in the scriptures when he said, some think that, fin- that godliness is a means to financial gain. The abundant life that God is talking about that's made possible by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ results in a peace that surpasses understanding. The reason why you don't have it could be because you have an idol. The abundant life that Jesus is talking about is a joy. Such kind of a joy that Paul, while he was in prison, would write the Christian joy manual, the book of Philippians. How's that? For supernatural work of God. From a man of God who was called by God to preach the gospel, and here he is in prison. Doesn't seem like he can fulfill God's calling to go and to preach the gospel and to plant churches if he's in prison. Paul said, nothing will separate me from the love of God that I have in Christ Jesus. God called me. I will surrender to God regardless of what the circumstances are. That's what it means to return to God with all of your heart. That's what it means to live a lifestyle of repentance. I'm no longer in the driver's seat. You're no longer in the driver's seat. It's not about what God is doing for me. It's what God has already done for me. It's what God is in my life. That's what it's all about. And yet today, in the church, we have a leadership void. The men are not leading in their families. The pastors are not leading in the churches. The elders are not leading. The deacons are not leading. All we seem to do, see, we recognize the country's in crisis. Secondly, we recognize there's a problem, and then that's as far as we go. We've got to go to that third understanding as leadership, as leaders. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do something biblical about this. June 11th, 1913. A man was born who grew up and only lived to be 57 years old. He died on September 3rd, 1970. In his early 20s, he wanted to get married, and his father said, are you out of your mind? You can't get married. You can't support a family. So because he was in love with this particular woman, he took his father's advice, took a teaching job where he taught physics and Latin and chemistry at St. Cecilia's High School in Englewood, New Jersey. And he made a whopping salary, almost made $1,000 a year in that job. But it was at that job that he found his real passion as he became the assistant coach for the high school football team. He found his passion and went on to win National Football League victory after National Football League victory, championship after championship after championship, and Vince Lombardi, who went on to coach the Green Bay Packers, that man that I'm speaking of, used to get his team to master the fundamentals. He'd often hold up a football and say to his guys, gentlemen, this is a football. It's no coincidence that Vince Lombardi went on to win and win and win and win. Super Bowl trophy to this day is named after Vince Lombardi for good reason because he taught his team how to master the fundamentals. We learn a lesson from Vince Lombardi today at these dark times in which we live. It's time for us to master the fundamentals about how God works in a nation, how God works in a family, how God works in our individual lives. It's time to go back to the basics, we're not putting into action all of the Bible we should. 
We have leaders in position all around this country in pastors, in elders, in deacons, all around this country. Thousands of us, there are thousands of us, we recognize the country is in crisis. We recognize that. We have Christians around the country, hundreds of thousands of us, many more than a mere minority. And all we are willing to do is say, we've got a problem. All we're willing to do is say, we've got a crisis. We're not reading all of the Bible. And when we don't read all of the Bible, we don't apply all of the Bible. When we don't apply all of the Bible, we don't have the things that God says He wants to give us in this Bible. You can have what God says you can have in this Bible. We can have what God offers to us through His Word because He keeps His Word. But God does want us, He does require of us to partner with Him, to respond to Him, to rise up and be the Christian that God called you to be, to rise up and be the Christian that God called me to be, not to shirk that responsibility and leave it for a generation some distant time in the future. We don't have time. Now is the time. It's been high time. I do mean right here. I do mean right now. I do I've got better things to do with my life, and so do you, than to just read portions of the Bible and to expect the fullest blessings promised in the Bible, offered by God himself, the author of the Bible. We've got better things to do than just to embrace portions of the Bible. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we could have some portion of a relationship with God, for God so loved the world. That he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave and he gave to such an extent that he gave even his very life. So that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. But once we get saved, it's not a matter of holding on to our seats and waiting for the rapture waiting for the return of Jesus. How foolish and insane that is when all around us we see Rome burning. Get a bucket of water. Let's get a bunch of buckets of water and put out this fire. More of the wrong solution will not compensate for the absence of the right solution, the only solution, which we see in the Bible again and again and again, which is for God's people, you and me, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will start moving. When you begin to see God no longer moving, or when you begin to see God moving in a way that begins to make us uncomfortable, it is time to return. It is an indication that we have forsaken something and it's not a thing. He's a person. This is why Joel was saying with all that was in him and it still wasn't enough. 
This is why whether it's the major prophets or the minor prophets, the message is the same. The message is this. Repent and keep repenting. Believe and keep believing. For the kingdom of God is at hand. It's time for you and it's time for me. It's time for our families. It's time for this church. It's time for your church. It's time for the church to arise at this dark hour in history. It's time for our light to shine. And it doesn't begin with the world. It begins with us. Repentance, humility, weeping, sackcloth, ashes, grieving over our sin, lamenting, forsaking the idols of our lives. All of those things have everything to do with our relationship with the living and true God. There is no life. There is no abundant life without Him. It's up to you. It's up to me. It's up to us together. At this time in history, repent. 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 For the kingdom of God is at hand. And God, who's building that kingdom, is speaking. Do you hear him? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.